Hey everybody, I'm Robbie Richman. Welcome to another episode of CultureHackers.com. Hi Robbie. Hey Jill. How are you? Good. We've got Jill Richman back with us. I gotta say, our names sound so familiar, you know, similar. Yeah. I'm Richman and you're Richmund, but right. if you say it quick, it just sounds exactly the same, right? Well, what happens when people say your name really quick? Richmond. Right, Richmond. Right. So sometimes it just sounds so alike. Yeah. We're going to have to do this genealogy thing because I'm convinced that there's, we have family relations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I'm concerned that people are going to think we're like married or something. <laughs> and I've kept the D. <laughs> <laughs> just hearing it, the Richmonds. Yeah. It's anyway. hilarious. Anyway. It is. So this is going to be an exploratory episode because usually what we're going to do is have guests on and then um, um, I or Jill and I will be interviewing them. Um, but this episode, it's just going to be her and I again. And we're going to be talking about some some upcoming themes that are going on. We're going to explore them here. It's a bit of a preview, but we're going to get into some fun stuff as well. And, um, you know, as I've said before, this is about exploring this medium in a lot of ways, because what's so fascinating about the podcast is that I realized what people have been trying to do so far has been to try to put radio on TV. Mm -hmm. You know, like I realized I didn't like most podcasts where it's just an interview. It's done by Skype. It's question and answer. Um, it feels so canned. Whereas the natural podcast format is just to talk and people feel like they're overhearing conversation. Right. And those are the kind of podcasts that I'd love. And I started to realize too that we can take more risks in this. You know, because if you, if you put out a blog post that has really risque content in it, it's so easy to tweet, to share, to go all over. People can see it. You say one little thing and it can just be all over, right? Mm -hmm. But if it's in the middle of a podcast, people aren't, I don't know, it just feels more conversational as opposed to on the written record that can easily be taken out of context. You know what I mean? Yeah, I completely know what you mean. I mean, I sort of think of the same, I think the the same attempt was made with uh, coffee and cars or comedians and cars getting coffee. Right. With Seinfeld's look, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a medium that works for me, which is I don't want to host a talk show, but I do want to sort of have myself with the people that I love to spend time with having very, very unscripted conversation. And some of it's risky and some of it's not risky and... It's a good medium to do it in, right? So it's the appropriate one. It's it's uh, it's online and uh, and um, it's where people are really starting to take some some serious risks right now. But go ahead. Yeah, well, let's have let's have you share with the audience in terms of your experience with this, like what podcasting. Do I listen to? No, just our experience here, like what you were telling me. I, you know, I. First first and foremost, I think that this is a continuation of a very normal conversation for Jill and Robbie Richmond. Mm-hmm. But I think that we have some pretty interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. And um and there's no way for us to do that other than hosting some little micro, you know, you know, taped version of it. You know, we couldn't sit and and write a blog and and have risky conversation back and forth because no one cares. And maybe no one cares about this, but this is a really like ripe medium for the two of us to sit and have coffee at eight in the morning. Yeah. And just riff off the same conversation we would have had sitting in Air One. Yeah. You know? Totally. What are your thoughts? 
I I love it, and I love feeling that this is really new. It's something to practice. Like I realize I'm not that great at this yet. Mm-hmm. You know that, that I hear certain ones. I love Joe Rogan's, and they just flow. They sound like they're in a flow state. Like when athletes are in the zone. Yeah, it's like it's almost like listening to improv comedians. Right working something out where it's like it almost feels scripted because they're just so in touch with each other and you're laughing and somebody says something that you'd think would just be so off target mm-hmm. and the other person runs with it in right. a way that you wouldn't expect. And so that's what I want to get to with this is I think it's still really early. And I think, you know, remember you were amazed with the last one where you found the feedback that people loved it and you thought it was just you know, us just being so random and well, you were surprised. Well, it's the same rule. As you say, it's the same rules of improv, right? You can't say no. Yeah. You always have to say yes. Uh-huh. So, and that to me feels unnatural in a show that people want to listen to. Okay. But ironically, it's exactly what people want to listen to. They yeah. want to hear two people who are running with a conversation and, and diving deeper into a topic. For some reason, I thought it was just me yammering away. <laughs> and And people loved it. So there you go. It's it's the same concept, right? You can't say you can't say no. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't wait for next week. We're going to have Carrie Kish here, which is going to be awesome because I find the triad style is is really cool. You know, two people are engaged, and then one person is holding this other pole and bringing something into it. And uh, I'm really excited for that one. Excellent. Yeah. So, um, so a few topics I wanted to explore on this is. Um, this idea we, we, we talked about, and I've got a great expert who's, who's going to be coming on later to, to talk about this more, is the idea of relevance. Mm-hmm. The idea of relevant. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's one of those things, I think, where you know when you just buy a, a BMW and suddenly you see BMWs everywhere? Mm-hmm. Like, they're not necessarily everywhere, but you see it. And that's what's happening to me with this word. Like, even, even Birdman. Did you see Birdman? Yeah, of course. Right? So that big speech that, that Emma Stone does when she just throws she down She said no dad, one cares. She said no, but she specifically said... She used the word relevant. relevant. You know, she's mm-hmm. like, "You're you're not relevant," and all of us are scared of becoming irrelevant. irrelevant. Yeah, and I, I wonder if this is going to be really a term that blows up. Oh, I definitely think. I mean, it's, it was an interesting line, right? Because it all had, everything had to do with his like narcissism, right? Mm-hmm. His complete narcissism as a father, as a an actor, and her saying, "Look, the only thing that you care about is relevance, and you don't matter anymore." Right. Because you've not accepted or embraced any of the, you know, any any of the social media, you know, that you need to in terms of sort of making yourself important. And he thinks it's hilarious. You know, he's still ho- he's still hooked on sort of the the theater, right? And the theater probably making him somewhat relevant. He doesn't he doesn't amount to anything. But um, yeah, it's funny. It's something that you talk about all the time because you you you. I've heard you talk about it with regard to Taylor Swift. And I want to hear you talk about that because that's like that. That to me is really interesting. You talk about it in the in in relation to the music industry. Yeah, I mean, she is such a fascinating case study. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm 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 blown away by her. I I thought I had a crush on on Taylor Swift. I realized what's more the case is I want to be Taylor Swift. Really? Yeah. I mean, what were you? No, no, no. Go, go, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious on this. Go ahead. <laughs> well, she blows me away. Actually, from from several standpoints. Yeah. I mean, from a business standpoint, she was so smart. She was not country, but she went into country, which is the biggest music selling market. They actually buy music. And if you see a map of the United States at night, you see most of the country is southern. You'll see the, like, U.S., this whole south is lit up. Yep. 
and the rest of it is just little sparkles here and there. So the South is huge. Country is huge. She wasn't country. She started in a market that made sense. Right. And she leveraged herself because her first song was the name of, I'm skipping the one, but the, it, her first song was the name of a country singer. Uh-huh. And it was about her and this this guy listening to this song. And so all of a sudden, all those guys' fans wanted to hear who she was. Who's this girl writing a song with the name of our favorite country singer? So she totally leveraged that. She's absolutely brilliant. She, this is, I thought, just classic courage, which was she had a record deal with the biggest record company. I think it was Universal. Um, I think you're right. Yeah, and she... She, you know, that's huge. You get a record deal with the biggest record label of all time, and they tell her, you're not going to do your own songs for a while. we got to get you used to being an artist first. And she turns down the biggest record label and goes with a Mm no-name, one that had just started, that had no track record whatsoever. An exec just started his own, and he said, I believe in you completely, Mm -hmm. and I want you to start doing your own songs, and we're going to make this happen. And and to have to be an artist to to turn down that huge contract and go with a no name, uh, because they believe in you. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about responding to your values as opposed to just trying to make money or just trying to go with prestige. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's really funny. I don't, and I'm. It's only because I just rewatched this. Did you ever? Um, did you ever watch Twenty Feet from Stardom? No. I. Oh yes, 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 yes. That's the movie about backup singers. Yeah. For those who are not listening, it's a it's a whole documentary on Netflix about how um uh, how how talented background singers are for all the the great artists. Um, well, they're slip in and out of relevance as well, right? This whole idea that in the '60s they became they became that sound, right? You think of Darlene Love, and you think of Darlene Love, who ended up having. I mean, this is the most interesting part of the film. Darlene Love got in bed with um, Phil Spector. And Phil Spector... Literally? We're not talking literally. Not literally. Just just business bed. Yeah. Which is still as dangerous as literal bed. (laughs) I think it's worse. So, um, and he absolutely, not literally, screwed her. In that um, he he recorded her voice. She got locked into a deal where she thought her voice was to put out her own record. Now she's 16, 17 years old. And um, he ended up repurposes her voice, repurposing her voice for the Crystals. And um, and that was the voice of Darlene Love, and she got no, um, there was no financial upside for her right. to be the voice of of the Crystals. Yeah, she got out of that deal, and she got into a new deal, and um, Phil Spector bought her contract back, and she got screwed by Phil Spector yet again. But there's all of these stories about the individual players, the backup voice that was like you listened to every major sort of girl band, right or or, or you think of the Iquettes, right? And then what happens in the transition from kind of like 60s, 70s to like what happens to this sound, mm-hmm. the sound of, of um, Motown or, you know, just this voice. And um, it, was, it was the Brits who like, it was Rolling Stone, you know, it was like the Rolling Stones who, it, it was David Bowie who embraced their sound again in... Um, uh, you know, you think about uh, just a shot away, right? Those mm-hmm. are those are the voices of 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 all of the backup singers and how they had to generationally flirt with their relevance and then go out on their own, and none of them can strike it out. Right? None of them could. Um, I don't know. Just you know, as it relates to the music industry, such a brilliant, 
brilliant movie. I so recommend it. Yeah, that was that was a good one. And um, another while we're on Netflix, um, have you heard of the parking lot movie? Uh uh-uh. You got to see this one. Okay. This is amazing. It's all about this parking lot where people work out where they they developed an amazing culture of working in a parking lot. I mean. You, you drive by and think there's there must this must be the antithesis of culture somebody just taking money and taking a ticket like there's just what a robot could do mm-hmm. um, but this documentary shows how they developed an entire culture at a parking lot such that people were like wanting to work there like it became a cool gig in this town to get this parking what lot was it what was the culture about they 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 had these traditions they had like all these things on the wall they had jokes for each other they were these kind of like highly irreverent comedic kind of people who would work there right and people would go hang out with the people at the parking lot because they wanted to be part of that scene it's amazing if if you ever think that like something cannot be made cool you've got to see this this movie because a parking that's lot really becomes interesting. cool that's super interesting yeah yeah Back, back to, to Taylor Swift, I think, like, have you seen some of the stuff she's done off the mic? Like, what she does for her fans? Oh, I've absolutely seen stuff that she's done for her fans. That's what makes people relevant. Yeah. That's like, absolutely what makes people relevant. I mean, oh, God, I can't believe I can't think of her name right now. Um, so, so, she, so, so some of the things Taylor Swift did, I mean, and she's got this on video, which is perfect, too, because you see her at Christmas time going to surprise her fans with these really touching gifts and you see these fans just break down in tears and you can't help but feel it yourself that that rock stars could be doing anything different with their time I don't know I, I don't know rock stars who do this maybe they do but at least Taylor Swift had the the wherewithal to say I'm not only going to do this but I'm going to make it shareable because this is a great message to go out there. I mean, you see this and it makes you want to give. It makes you want to surprise somebody with a great gift. Because she's literally driving to their houses to surprise them herself with these gifts that they specifically mentioned on Twitter would be just such a, a big deal for them. Mm-hmm. Is remind, did you ever see the TED Talk that Amanda Palmer did? I don't think so. No. I mean, Amanda Palmer talks about the art of asking and the art of giving. Mm-hmm. And it has everything to do with um, going to her fans to help her build her music career rather than having to sign on a label. And this is her shtick, right? This has always been her shtick. But um, she stays at fans' homes when she's on the road. Whoa. Mm-hmm. It's part of the deal, right? Like, she never knows who she's going to stay with, but she stays at fans' homes. She says, yeah. I don't take out a hotel. You know, I respond to people on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know, I stay completely relevant with everyone who buys my music. And um, I let them know I'm in town and I ask who wants to put me up. Wow. And she just shows up. She shows up at, you know, she shows up at the banker's house. She shows up at, I mean, you name it. And she talks a little bit about that, you know, in addition to like where she started, which was like a busker, right? I mean, yeah. she really was a busker. And she talks about having to make the ask for money, right? To sing for her supper, ultimately. Huh. Um it's a good it's a good talk you should listen to it but she talks about that in the context of how she stays relevant with her fans ultimately yeah and she puts out music that they want to hear because they are the people who are backing her and who are yeah you know i mean i was i was telling some of the taylor swift stories to a driver when i was at a speech and i said you know it's brilliant on so many levels and and i said can you imagine these 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 girls on twitter how much they must be sharing about this experience yeah. and the driver this guy next to me says says are you kidding if that was my experience that's all i would be talking to you about right now right. this whole car ride would be about taylor swift that's so interesting yeah so you think do you think she has complete 
universal adoption to some extent. I mean, she's gone beyond kind of the tween fan base. I because you're a fan. I'm a fan. You know what? I this this is this is how crazy a fan I became with this. I actually um, on a jog went down to Target to buy the physical CD because what what they did was so brilliant. They said first we're not putting it on Spotify because we want any fan to feel good about purchasing it and not some uh, one of their friends to say why did you get buy Taylor Swift's album you could have got it for free she said I want any person who's a fan to feel proud that they bought it and so she not only made it for sale on iTunes but if you went to Target to get the actual physical CD you get all these extra tracks and this is where she gets just even more relevant three of the tracks are her explaining her songwriting process and you get to hear from recordings from her cell phone the different ways that she thinks of and and comes up with and, and what do the numbers song. look like for those sales? Do you know? You I know. don't know, but it was the first. It was finally the first album to go platinum for the year right. when no album had because everything was just has become free in radio music. She was the first one to actually hit platinum again. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Um. There was something else I was going to say. Oh, 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 so, and, and, and this is where it gets weird too, is there's this, her song, Blank Spaces, mm-hmm. the blank space. Yeah. Um, you know, so much of her songs, I think, are more for the tween girls. Oh, they and, completely are. I mean. But you listen to this one, and it really feels like she's singing to you as a guy. It's basically this song that says, you could be my next guy. And she sings it in such a way that you actually believe in some way it could be you. Like, if you happen to meet her at the right time in the right place, like, that could be you she's talking about. That could be so you, So she makes you feel so relevant. Millions of people make... To, to get that kind of personal connection, I think it's just brilliant. Yeah. That's really interesting. So can I ask you on a personal basis? Go for you it. You have this whole thing. You have an obsession with relevance, and that's yes. fair. So what do you do to stay relevant? I mean, what is your... I mean, this... This is my strategy for relevance. Yeah. Is it's way more like not to compare myself with Michelangelo, more just his strategy. Michelangelo said when he how did you create the David, the big huge statue? Yeah. He said it was all about taking away the parts of the rock and the concrete that were not the David and right. the David was in there. And to me that's the strategy for relevance is it's we don't even necessarily know what is relevant. But it's so clear what is not relevant. And we know it at our core. Like when you are just combing through Facebook, bored out of your mind, like you know that stuff's not relevant. You know you're going to find one out of 20 things that are actually, oh my God, this is really important to my life or, or the world. You're combing through so much other crap to find that. And these habits and these things that we do and where we put our time and attention and energy if you're really not bullshitting yourself, there's a lot of highly irrelevant stuff. And to me, it's more about if you make it a, a discipline to not engage in those, like 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 the philosophy that I use from Derek uh, Sivers, which is if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no. Right. You know, how many times do we say yes to things that were just um, even just, a, oh, that sounds great, as opposed to how many, how life would be incredible if we only said yes to the things that are the hell yeah. The oh yeah, absolutely. I will get out of bed if I'm even feeling tired or sick and make that thing happen because I'm that's so relevant to me. How many times have you said do you really believe in that? I do, but it's so challenging. Because the most challenging part is in those really good things 
where it's like it's not the hell yeah where like for example it'll be a a, a really great sounding conference you know this speaker's there this person that it's in this great city you know and it's that very good level but Whenever we're saying yes to something, we're saying no to something else. So I'm saying no to further developing my own speeches, my own content, podcasts, spending time with friends and family, um, dating, these kind of things. Um, and in that context, it... So do you apply the same philosophy to dating? The hell yes, no. That's a great question. No, because I realized with dating, it would, it would, I'd probably be alone all the time. All the right? time. Yeah, I think dating I've needed to be way more open-minded to at first. Right. But because but after a while you kind of you you know that gut feeling and sometimes we just don't pay attention to those and I think that's where we get off to relevance like you know when when I personally say oh all these things are working so great but these aren't I'm not going to pay attention to these and it's about for me it's been about understanding what is um what what's most important at the core. Um and the level of 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 priority. So I find that once you're into it, it becomes about that. But at first I find myself constantly surprised. Like this is why I think dating apps are in danger of being irrelevant. You think they're in danger of being irrelevant. Yeah. Okay. In the sense that this is where it really hit for me. Cause I get that they're, they're absolutely fantastic time wasting apps. They are brilliant for that. You're in line at the bank. There's nothing more interesting than than going through faces and saying i like this i don't like that you know if you're dating it gives you this the the this sense of um excitement like a dopamine rush in that sense they're highly relevant but in terms of actually meeting somebody that you can connect with and have a great relationship with this is where it hit me that that this could be bullshit was i met a woman offline gorgeous I mean, just like looks great, right? And so I looked her up online, like, you know, Google Images or Facebook and things like that. And it blew me away because the photos I saw, I said, I would never have picked this woman out. I would have swiped no immediately on this woman. And it happened a couple times where I'm like, there is something so missing in this dimension. So many, there's something, I don't know, the je ne sais quoi or what, mm -hmm. of what can be so attractive of somebody in person that I could say that I could go from gorgeous in person to immediate swipe no online if I had just seen them there first. Have you ever done that experiment? Have you run that experiment before with I, yourself? Just like, I don't know. What do you mean, mean, like I, you look at the picture and you think, nah, I'm going to take this date anyway. I'm just curious. Let me, I'm just going to take the state anyway. Um, I haven't. No? I haven't. I think I, I, I'd be curious to do that. I, I recently got back on the these dating apps, and I, I've taken more of the if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no approach. Yeah, but and that's I've, hard. That's, again, <sighs> it's, not, it's almost an impossible medium online with a dating app, which is a swipe left yeah. or a swipe right. I mean, but I got to say, like, I, I went over to my this friend's house. Granted, it's different for women than men, but she, uh, she pulled out her phone. I saw eight, literally 800 matches that she had. Granted, she's a beautiful woman. It works differently like that. But my point with this is that the strategy is working well for me in the sense that I've only made maybe, you know, out of all that, that swiping, um, like four connections. Hmm. But to me, that's kind of a win, you know, to limit that field, to not make it the, like a full-time hobby, swiping and dating and screening and calling and doing all those things that might happen if I got a lot of matches. Right. Fair enough. Right. Aren't you glad you're not a millennial? 
<laughs> Why? What? I Loaded just, statement. I, you know, I, I think I was saying too, is like I was reading an article. Was it a Rolling Stone? Maybe it was a Rolling Stone article. And it just, ta- I mean, we all know this is a stereotype for millennials that there is like this, um, it's a, it, it, there is this notion of hookup culture, right? Like it's so easy to be commitment phobic as a millennial and, and, um, nothing scares, excuse my language, nothing scares the shit out of me more than just having like 500 options at my disposal, which I have absolutely no like personal connection to. And I'm quite happy to continue to sw- swipe right because you're attractive and this is fine. Nothing scares you more. So like being buried alive, tortured, nothing scares you more than having 500 options. It kind of scares me. Really? It really does. Is that saying anything? Like, what, I, 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 I almost want to like psychomologicalize this or say like... Psychomologize. <laughs> Go for it. I want to hear what well, your thoughts what's, are. What's the, what's the feeling? Like what, what, is, what is that? I... I, I Okay, so the recorder actually stopped for that one, which we were thinking might have been a good thing because we were going down some kind of rabbit hole that um, that I think would have been fine if it made sense, but we were starting to not make sense, so we're just going to pick it back up. I just have a theory about that. I oh, think yeah? actually that, Robbie, you don't like to play improv. If you don't... <laughs> if, if... Really? Yeah, Honestly? that you'll pull the plug if you don't feel like... <laughs> If you don't want to say yes, if it's not a hell yes, it's an unplug. Wow. You know, you know what would be crazy if we had some kind of video replay and it was actually my finger that did it and like unconsciously I hit stop. Like You're that like, would be, she's yammering. That would be really stop. freaky. Yeah, interesting. So, I wish we had some kind of replay. Fair enough. <laughs> so um, Back to relevance. Yes. And... I, I think we'll explore this more, you know, potentially uh, the the millennial idea and its intersection with with sex and love with Carrie Kish because she actually has millennial kids. We're kind of talking out of our our butts in a way here, right? Because we're not millennials. We don't like not have millennials. millennials. But I, but I don't think that we have to. I'm not, I don't know if I'm talking out of my butt. No, because you've read a few articles. <laughs> no, because I have friends who are running dating apps. And, oh yeah, you know, they're what do you tar- learn from them? I learn who their target demographic is and I learn exactly how they... What surprised you about it? What surprised me about millennials or what surprised me about... The polarization in in the world of millennials when it comes to love and dating, which I think it's something that we're talking about, which is you you said it's liberating, right? Mm -hmm. This notion of being liberated and, and being able to sort of have a hell yes, hell no philosophy in the world of dating, but also be able to... Find a sexual category of your own, which I think is something, Mm. a very niche sexual category of your own that I think would not exist if it were not for the world of dating apps to some extent, right? Which, that you can seek out your very, very, very own, very specific, you know, other person who you couldn't ever find offline previously, right? I think it's something that we can talk about later. I don't think we have to... Yeah, I mean, if 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 you guys have seen it, the the cover of Wired is all. It's called Digital Sex. It's all about how these apps and and this culture is changing. Um, but I think the most surprising article in there was this one talking about how much um, there's a section or a subsection of the millennials who are opting out entirely of sex. Like they 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 don't even find it interesting. They're not opting out. They have a predilection for not like. Yeah. A lot of others that had a predilection before, but didn't really know how to say, look, by the way, I'm just not sexual. Yeah. I need a partner who gets that. Right. Right. 
Um, anyway, we can talk. We can cover that with Carrie if you want. Yeah. And not talk about a generation that we pretend that we understand. I'll be curious. We're also going to have Rich Potter on. Um, he's a professor at AJU, and he's been teaching about the mythology of love. Mm. Really fascinating guy. Like talks about love across the ages. And what I found interesting talking with him was how how different the contrast is, even in just the past hundred years of what love and marriage means now mm-hmm. versus the history of humankind. And this book that he, he uses part of it called The History of Marriage. Mm-hmm. And in it, um, the author goes through all the current expectations of marriage that mm-hmm. comes into it in terms of it's your best friend, it's your lover, it's your co-parent, it's your co-houser, it's... Um, it, it, it goes on, and then it also says, "Oh, and by the way, your you, the the people around you, your community, will have no input in this, into this decision." And she talks about how this is just a total anomaly in history to have all these expectations without external community really having an influence. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I think that's that's part. Of, I wonder how much that has to do with marriage rates going down is the expectation level has gotten so high. And by the way, with some of these polls that I've been seeing, it's that people um, in these millennial polls still do want to get married. And they still have those expectations. Right. But their expectations, I imagine, become greater and greater and greater and greater. Well, not just them. I worry about it for myself. You worry about it for yourself, sure. But, you know, there was a thread in what I was saying to you previously. And Mm. the reason why it scares me is because there was a HuffPo article that says... If you haven't been in a long-term or serious relationship by the age of 30, you lose the ability to negotiate. Like that muscle is totally atrophied. Like being able to say, um, you know, it's, I always call it the, um, what is it called? It's, it's the price of admission, right? The price of admission in a happy relationship mm. is that I'm willing to accept all of these deficiencies in my partner, some of them, right? Yeah. And they're not going to be on my expectation list i'm willing to accept that like leaving the mayonnaise can open or jar open or whatever i mean little things and big things like here's the price of admission and you learn that early in your 20s right like i can't have such unbelievable laundry list of expectations that are it's asking me to find the unicorn right if i want a happy relationship I have to create some things that are non, not non-negotiables. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder how much it has to do with like um, crossing, uh, breaking through a fear or something like that. Like I, I, I was talking to, to a man who was saying he counsels a man who's 70 years old and still hasn't found that right person who's finally getting that it's it's not the other person. It's them. It's 70, you know. Um, and I, I just think about myself where... Like, I remember dating a, a woman and at one point just thinking, I cannot take this nasal voice. Like, I, I cannot imagine that for the rest of my life. And just being like, oh, my God, I have to get out of this. And, and, and it's this almost this feeling of fear of, like, just being trapped in a cage with this and not being able to get out. And I, I, I um, you know, sometimes think about her and wonder. I wonder how much was that indicative of other things or was it, like, this kind of um, sabotage mechanism that you just have to push through that fear. Does that make any sense? It does. I don't know. A nasal voice could really... <laughs> it could really get annoying. It could really irritate it's, the hell out of me. <laughs> right? Do I have a nasal voice? No, no. no. It's, it's one of those things where, especially be, since becoming a public speaker yeah, and getting deeper training in this, and now it's like I've got such a sensitivity to voice. Yeah. 
that I like blow your nose. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I don't go see speakers that much anymore because it's just it can be it can be painful if they're if they're not on their game. Whereas I think before having this, I didn't even have a lot of these distinctions. Yeah, I went to a group led. My my friend dragged me to a group led meditation the other night, and she's like, "You looked." so annoyed the entire time and she's and as we're walking out she's like i felt really bad she's like i just wanted she's like but you just looked so annoyed i was like his voice was so irritating (laughs) it was so irritating to me that i could not focus and she goes (laughs) she goes if you listen to the if you listen to what he was saying he was talking about compassion in other people (laughs) (laughs) classic right she's like there was definitely some irony in the fact that you were so pained she's like he was talking about having compassion for yourself and compassion for other people p.s and i just said nah well over my head yeah (laughs) anyway so do do you know are you an audio based person yes yeah me too i mean that must have something to do with it. It, it, it 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 amazes me how big a difference that can be like very visual people First of all, like it's it's so funny the way you can tell because you know you and I are talking we're not really moving our hands. Right. But if 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 I was an, a visual person and you started moving it, I would look like a cat. Suddenly, I would just be tracking your hands. <laughs> oh my God. And, 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 and you could be doing anything, and they're just focusing. What's he going to do next with the hands? That's funny. Yeah, and I, I found that I would um, never put you in a family location with my. Yeah, you know, I would never put you in a family dinner with my family who just gesticulate wildly, like really? you wouldn't pay attention to anything. No, that's not me. That's a visual person. Right. I'm an audio based person, an so I person. you can do that all day. But but the visual person, they'll be just tracking everything right. you do, and it's amazingly it's 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 different to relate to somebody if if you have very primary senses as your different intake mechanisms. You know, the way the way we learn if you're more tactile, if you're more visual, if you're more audio. Well, but that so hold on a second. Mm. Then that then I would say it has nothing to do with fear that that woman's like nasal voice. (laughs) Right. was like, I mean, we talked about this last week. Right. We talked about like, I mean, it was sort of in a jocular way. You were like, what is your love language or whatever? What is the Right. And I basically was like humor. Right. I mean, it was like, (laughs) you know, I said, I want to be roasted, you know. And so like. A non-negotiable for me is I cannot be in a relationship with someone who doesn't make me laugh, right? Yeah. And you definitely could not be in a relationship with someone who is really whiny and nasal. Right. I mean, okay. Yeah. Glad we summarized that. <laughs> Let's get I you sound, back on. Let's I get sound. you back on Tinder. <laughs> which is another place that you could not test that out. So Right. Yeah. You're gonna have to get on the phone with these people. But um anyway, going back, were we going back to relevance? Or do you want to go back to uh Mm, I don't know. I think we're all we're kind of starting to wrap up. Right. Are you? Are, are any other? We we covered these topics: relevant uh, marriage and sex, millennials. These are all ones that, like I said, this is kind of a preview episode. It's Jill mm-hmm. and I just riffing, but we're going to have some more people to to talk about these in depth. Um, we're going to have more podcasts with Dan Mezik. Some episodes that I, re- I recorded with him. He's doing amazing culture work. Um, he's got this amazing concept. It's not his. He just you know finds these this idea of a liminal state have you heard of a liminal state no it's it's fascinating it's this idea a liminal state is when you're in between two states Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of chaos and there's a lot of anxiety that happens and this is normal in life but it would tend to happen um in in punctuated explanation points usually like for example going from being a boy to being a man Mm-hmm. that's this state where, okay, I'm not going to, mom's not taking care of me anymore, but I'm not a full man taking care of myself. I'm in this liminal state. And society 
tends to create rituals and traditions to help with that. So like in the Jewish tradition, that one specifically is the bar mitzvah, you're becoming a man. That's right. There's another one in terms of a, a wedding is you're going from being a single unit to now we're, you know, really making a, a, a unit, a business, a family together. Right. And there's a ritual and it oftentimes has a master of ceremonies and it's done what he's talking about to reduce anxiety that these are usually high highly anxious states but by creating a really profound ritual around it mm. um it it eases that anxiety and gives us this marker point to hold on to which is i have to say and just to extend that i mean you talk about marriage i say i always say that what Jews do really really well in mm -hmm. terms of marker states is um mourning and grieving, the mourning and grieving process, mm, right. and those punctuation marks and what happens in a year through the mourning and grieving process. Very smart. Yeah. Very smart, especially in a high state of friction and anxiety, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And no, I mean, it's so relevant, too, because um, what, what Dan recognized, especially through um, Harrison Owen's work in the book Spirit, is that yeah. how much corporate transitions are about grieving, and they don't realize it because grieving is, is about loss, mm -hmm. and you're losing something in the previous state, whatever that was, and corporations and CEOs think, don't pay attention to the past, focus on the new, it's all about the new, but there's actual loss there that happens, and if those emotions of grieving aren't addressed That's right. in some sort of ritual format, even yes. if it's just open discussion, at least you're addressing it and calling it out. Right. Um, that that it, you actually get arrested development and you get stymied um, because people weren't allowed to process the grieving in a company. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I always and it's the same. It's the same thing with people who start companies and fail, you know, and then they, they leap into the next startup and there's a whole grieving process. Yes. Which is worth worth thinking about. Yeah. Did you go through that for yourself? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I went through. Did I you went, know you were going through that at the time or was it all retrospect? You know. If I'm being frank, it happened at the same time that I lost a family member. So, I mean, I was grieving two things. I was grieving a company and I was grieving a family member. And mm -hmm. I think the two had shared, the two shared very similar experiences. I absolutely knew I was going through it, but I, I had a good therapist mm. who reminded me that like there were two losses in the process. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And you, you think if you hadn't gone through that, you could have just like repeated the same story? Oh, I think that if you don't do like, if you don't go through the processes and like, and, and mark the problems and the feelings that you're having, then I think it's very easy for you to go back to the same playbook. You'll, you'll play them out again. It's like when you leave a relationship and you find yourself in the same exact relationship and you're like, I'm retelling the same story. Yeah. Why the hell am I seeking out the same person to retell the same story again? Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Jeez, makes me think. Yeah, so this this idea of the liminal state, it's it's really interesting because what he makes the point is he says that um, because there's so much change now and so many options and opportunities, um, the rate of change is going so fast that we're almost finding ourselves in a constant liminal state. Mm. And what is that going to mean? And how do we create meaning? And how do we create ritual? When before it used to be, you know, becoming a man and then like having your first job and getting married and kids. And like, so there's like four or five or six or whatever course of a lifetime. Whereas now I've got friends in a major company that they're reorganizing everything every week. Yeah. Like every week you're, you're, you're switching those people you used to be able to rely on having to get to know somebody new. And the amount of stress that that causes is just incredible. Yeah. But absolutely. it's possible. It's possible to create that level of change. It's possible to throw out that person and go out with a new person. It's possible now that you don't have the same job for 30 years. You're changing them every one to two years. Well, but I think the possibility only comes if you at least acknowledge the milestone. 
right? What do you mean? But, well, I think that the whole point of it is that there is some kind of a tradition in recognizing that a milestone has happened. I'm now crossing into the next state, right? Yeah. Um, if you just keep rolling into the next, you never take a moment to say to yourself, wait, I'm sort of dating the same person again, <laughs> right? Wait, I just ended this. And the reason why I ended it is because maybe they were acerbic and slightly abusive. And now I'm, I'm actually walking to the same. You don't know what I mean? Right. Like you can recreate the, sec- the next scenarios if you don't just reflect it. There's a reflection point. There's an inflection point and a reflection point, right? In that whole process. I'm feeling stupid. What is the inflection point? There's a milestone, right? The milestone, you know, like in, I think when it comes to um, the notion of saying, I'm now going at a bar mitzvah, sort of an inflection point in your life. Okay. And you're also going through a period of reflection in that process, right? I'm now crossing this Mm. next stage, whether it's like happening externally amongst family or it's happening internally. And I think the same thing comes when you're walking away from a company, right? There's an inflection point and there's a moment of reflection. If it's happening so quickly every week, you're changing, you're reorganizing. reorganizing there's no moment of right totally punctuation and like both inflection and reflect does that make sense yeah yeah yeah, absolutely you have to build that time for it you have to to stop the way i've heard it characterized especially in the tech world is the difference between sprints versus marathons that's right you know it used to be that you would just have these like long trudges to the end and now instead it's a sprint you go two weeks you just stop no work you pause you reflect you you say what do we learn what do we need to do differently how do we course correct and um, it's amazing how much that's the challenging part of the process for a lot of companies is to stop, to stop working. Right. Um, because it's almost this just adrenaline-filled rush of, oh, we could do more, we can do more, we can keep going. And it's hard to get off that that's train. That's what agile development is all exactly. about, right? Exactly. Yeah. So. Cool. Yeah, Dan's an agile developer. We'll be talking more about agile in future podcasts. And um, these are all at, at culturehackers.com. You can, you can download them. You can subscribe. Um, and you can subscribe to email updates and I believe contact information is there. If not, I'm Robert at cultureblueprint.com. Would love to hear your feedback. I see that people are listening. I have no idea who you guys are. Um, if this is striking is relevant to you, would love to hear from you. Uh, Robert at cultureblueprint.com and my site's robertrichman.com. Any place you want people to find you, Jill? You can find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Okay. Find me on LinkedIn right now. Um, I will absolutely start providing a bunch of different handles so you can you can promote the hell out of me if you want but okay. for right now you can find me at jill richmond on linkedin richmond m-o-n-d with a d i kept the d yes <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you as always for listening with us and sticking with us through this conversation to the end we'll see you on a future episode of culture hackers take care